You prayed so beautifully for your grandpa's funeral this week, too. And thank you for that this morning. I uh, was praying for you as you were playing at your grandpa's funeral. God would give you strength, and he did. And uh, thank you for honoring him this morning. John chapter 3, I walked in this morning, and someone gave me a card, and it had, um, it was a nice card, um, and it had a protein bar in it. So, while Pastor Steve was sharing his presentation, I hid in the back and I ate another 160, 160 calories of, of protein, get the metabolism going, but I had never seen the title of this particular protein bar before, so I'm going to show it to you because I think it was given to me for ulterior motives. <laughs> Apparently, I needed more protein so that I could think more appropriately. It's called Think. Have you ever seen a Think bar before? Yes. You have. Yes. That's why you're so lucid all the time. Amen. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> So anyways, this better be a home run sermon with uh, about, because I had a protein drink on the way to church. That's 30 grams of protein. This is another 20 grams. So I don't even know what a full day's allowance is, but I think I'm overdosing on protein. So... We better stay really sharp today. Let's, uh, let's get to the word. John chapter 3, you're already there. Pastor Mark read it. Uh, Pastor Mike already asked God's blessing on the preaching, so we'll dive in here this morning. It is of utmost importance that we do our best to recall the theme of the gospel that we're studying as often as possible. Remember, we discovered that the theme, as John concludes in his writing in chapter 20, is that the Lord Jesus Christ had performed all of these signs and miracles so that people would believe on him. As a matter of fact, we studied in our introduction to this book that John uses the word believe per chapter more than any other writer of the scriptures. We should also remember that John writes almost a generation after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Nothing he writes contradicts them but he writes with a perspective of time and age. John's in his late 80s, early 90s when he writes. He's really able to summarize in the most simple language the most important things for us to know so that we might believe and live. In a world full of information at our fingertips, considering the pace at which information comes our way, and our lives are lived, I would ask us to come together and, and slow down a bit each week during this hour, take a deep breath, and to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling as we continue to study this gospel together. So I would ask you, do you believe? Amen. Do you believe in Jesus? Has he changed the way you live because you've believed in him? Has he given you a divine purpose for living at all? We review this today because the passage before us is one of review and perspective. John does this to teach us a pattern of doing the same. You see, that's one of the many virtues of wiser, older people around us. They like to remember their spiritual values and have them held close. So if their lives can continue to be governed in the sunset years of their life, as they have been 
govern all the days of their lives in their belief, in their changed lives as they live for an eternal purpose. So again, that's why we're really studying this whole gospel. We're hearing from an aged man who's finished his life with the wisest perspective possible, with the greatest purpose possible. So as you read the passage earlier, you may have noticed the flow in a certain way. What I'd like to do is simply walk through the text along several lines and then make some practical conclusions together in a timely fashion uh, before our baptisms this morning. I'd like to divide this little narrative up into three particular sections. First of all, I would like to look at the priority of purification. The priority of purification, we'll explain that this morning. Then I would like to look at the need for personal evaluation, the priority of purification, the need for personal evaluation, and then we'll conclude this morning with some divine clarification. Divine clarification is found in verses 31 to 36. So what of the priority of purification? Pastor Mark read about this in verses 22 to 24. Baptism in our context, was considered yet another form of Jewish purification. Remember those water pots at the wedding of Cana? Our Jewish friends just cleansed everything in the course of their day. It seemed every part of their body and everything they touched in a 24-hour period had to be ceremonially set apart for a specific use. As a matter of fact, it wasn't uncommon by this time in Jewish history for Jewish people to self-purify themselves, self-baptize. As a matter of fact, they weren't allowed to do this in anything but freezing cold water. Is it heated this morning, Gordon? All right, your daughter's getting baptized. I want to make sure that you weren't uh, self-traumatizing her while you... Right? It'll be warm in there, but they did it with freezing cold water, some type of a religious asceticism, actually. The setting before us this morning follows Jesus and his disciples in the short time after the Passover that we studied in John chapter 3 as well. Jesus still probably has about five to six of his disciples following him so far. They entered the Judean countryside. Baptism is mentioned here. As a matter of fact, John's gospel is the only gospel that mentions that Jesus baptized, but yet we find out in chapter 4 and verse 2 that it was actually Jesus' baptism. And John's followers here say that Jesus is doing the baptizing, but Jesus clarifies, or John clarifies, and says actually Jesus delegated that to his disciples. His disciples were baptizing. But nonetheless, um, that's just FYI. The Lord Jesus stayed with his disciples in this area for close to eight months in the year 27 AD, and there were many baptisms performed. So there's increasing information regarding baptism coming our way, and this will continue through the next few verses, as we'll see this morning, and we'll settle into some explanation of the priority of identification through baptism here for a few minutes by explaining a bit of baptism history within the context. We have here the beginning of a transition between the baptism of John the Baptist 
and Christian baptism as we know it today. Water baptism has always been a public matter of obedience that identifies us with a certain people group or a certain person and what they taught. John the Baptist preached the gospel of repentance and baptized people who had responded to his message of salvation. He continues to baptize while preaching this message until the day of his imprisonment. In our immediate context, we find now Jesus and his disciples baptizing in a different area. Jesus' public ministry has been inaugurated at the wedding of Cana, and as he preaches, souls are saved, and his disciples were given the authority by Jesus to baptize newly saved people in Jesus' name. Jesus, by delegating the responsibility of baptism to his disciples, does simply prove that he's greater than John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist could not maintenance that authority. He wouldn't even take it upon himself. Just a couple years forward from this context, we're going to find Jesus' disciples becoming some of the first elders, pastors, teachers as apostles of the first church in Jerusalem. They would be among a few more that would be baptizing thousands in the early days of the church and its existence in that great city. The explanation of baptisms and their transition from John to Jesus and his disciples on the way to understanding New Testament church baptism is necessary towards an emphasis of priority of identification. Purification publicly, right, was moving towards the priority of identification. Baptism as public purification would identify us with who we have followed as our spiritual leader and been purified spiritually by him. Each time we notice baptism from John the Baptist forward, we do find people trusting Christ very near to the occasion of their baptism. We find them publicly identifying with Christ by being dipped into water. And this morning we'll have two young ladies follow in obedience and do the same. There's something of a very nature of obedience in baptism that is foundational to the early growth of a believer. One is set apart in holiness through justification and salvation. First, have you believed? Have you been saved? Have you been born again? One is set apart in that way, and as they're set apart first under Christ spiritually, then they are publicly set apart among his people in obedience unto a cause, the cause of Jesus Christ to have saved them. So yes, baptism is obedience after salvation. Most would say it's our first public act of obedience after salvation, and I suppose I'm fine with that, but obedience unto what? Certainly the Lord's command to do so. But what does baptism represent? It's a public display that you have placed your faith in the God-man, Jesus, who was sacrificed, buried, and rose again, and lives now at the right hand of God, imminently prepared at the Father's bidding to come and receive us back into himself. 
And while we await that appearing, baptizing is a personal public act of the evangel too. It's an act of the gospel as well. Again, two young ladies will stand before you and publicly identify with Christ in obedience to the ordinance of baptism. In so doing, they're proclaiming to everyone here the effect of the gospel in their own hearts and lives, and they are committing themselves to public identity in Christ and public responsibility in Christ to do gospel progress with you. So, the priority of public baptism is essential. So while it's the first public act of following, it's really the touchstone act that will be the first step of evangelism for anyone baptized among us. The text goes on to explain that John the Baptist continued to baptize as well. This was his prophetic responsibility, right? He would remain faithful under this responsibility until his end, which came by beheading. John the Baptist is in Bethany beyond Jordan. It's in the north where Jesus and his disciples are ministering, and he's in the very same place obeying where we last found him. I think that it's significant to know that simply because... um, We will only know the Lord's success if we remain faithful serving where the Lord has appointed us to serve. John certainly is exemplifying that. But as we continue, John the Baptist has crossed the river and is ministering on the west side of the Jordan. Pastor Mark read the geographic locations and this is a place of, literally in the grammar, a place of many fountains. Place of many fountains. Jewish historian Eusebius confirms that John the Baptist is ministering in this region, and this region contains a group of seven springs. Again, just to the north of Galilee, where John the Baptist remains centrally located, is within easy reach of people of four provinces, and there's plenty of water for John the Baptist to preach and then to baptize people. And people came to him, were being baptized, our text says. People came from all these regions to identify as Christ followers in a very public way. And God honored John's ministry. But let's always remember, in chapter 1, John the Baptist pointed out Christ in the crowd the day he baptized Jesus. Jesus was so great that John the Baptist said he was not worthy to even unlatch the buckle of his sandal. From the start of John the Baptist's public ministry, he's deflecting to Jesus who was to come. He submits himself to Christ publicly the day he baptizes him. And even though he's still baptizing after Jesus' public ministry with his disciples had commenced, John the Baptist is still baptizing and deflecting people to Jesus. So while he's obeying, he's sending people to follow Christ. Our salvation, our gifting, and wisdom are all from God and we are all to obey and to serve constantly with people while pointing them to Jesus Christ who is much greater than us. Service narcissism is not John the Baptist's method and it should never be ours either. 
Whether we therefore we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. And Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the express image of the glory of God. Amen. We do all things unto him. So we've evaluated here a bit of the priority of obedience in baptism. A priority of purification, if you will. If we'll use that historically Jewish term. Now let's investigate a bit of self-analysis necessary by each of us as we obey the Lord in our individual ministry. So let's investigate the need for personal evaluation here. C.S. Lewis once said, there's a lot of things that you can do with sand, just don't try building on it. At any time in Christian history where you find certain clear gospel progress, you can find immediate pushback against that progress at any time. We see pushback to gospel progress in this text coming from the very disciples of John the Baptist. Particularly, there's an unnamed Jewish person that kind of gaslights the whole thing here. Throughout the millennia of the church's existence, numerous distractions or those things that push back against gospel progress have been presented to the church and they, they cause disunity and they threaten togetherness unto our eternal purpose and it is something Satan enjoys to do. And Satan can even do this through God's people. In our flesh, it is easy for us to debate and divide over non-essential issues compared to the hardship of working in sync while spreading the gospel together. But living in fallen but saved bodies and souls is something we all struggle with from time to time anyway. If there are any issues to be debated Let's make sure we avoid attention to the discussion at the expense of the progress of the gospel, especially if the issues that are being debated are tertiary surface issues. What we discover in this portion of our text today is just that. There was a potential divide that would affect gospel progress over first level issues, if you will. There arose a disgruntled group of John the Baptist disciples that raised issue. And again, this unnamed Jew gaslights it. And it was an issue about purification. So it's, it's not a tertiary issue to a Jew. But as we explain the priority of purification and identification in our first point, we're going to find out that it had become a tertiary issue at this point because there was something much more grand at stake here than just merely Jewish purification or the right of Jewish purification. The disciples of John were essentially arguing a more efficacious cleansing through the baptism of their rabbi, John the Baptist, than Jesus was offering. Though John the Baptist was consistently sending his followers to follow Jesus, not all left him. Those who remained with him noticed that the crowds following Jesus and his parallel ministry of preaching and baptizing of his disciples was growing much larger than John the Baptist's. 
To John the Baptist's followers, all of a sudden, Jesus was selling more tickets to his concert than they were to their rabbi's concert. John the Baptist's disciples ran to him and said in the text that we read, Rabbi, and by the way, don't be, don't be put off by that. This was, this was a common name used by somebody who is a spiritual leader of a small group of people. It became a formal Jewish title in time, but we don't have time to explain all of the semantic domain usage of this particular term, teacher. But nonetheless, they came to him and they had a concern. Rabbi, he who was with you, that's Jesus, beyond the Jordan, to whom you bore testimony, we remember that, we have no problem with his story as you told it. Look, he baptizes and all are going to him. Well, those who are easily distracted by tertiary issues that distract from gospel progress exude some following characteristics. And I thought these three characteristics that are debated as tertiary issues among those being distracted from gospel progress noted here by Hendrickson, I thought were important to highlight here because I think they're true. So this group of people, what are they caught up by? This Jewish person that's gaslit some of the followers of John the Baptist and, and they're now all up in arms about who's following who. What are some things that we need to note about these people? Well, in the spirit of jealousy and anger, these people never use Jesus's name. Write it down, I'll leave it there. John's the only one that records this story, but I think it's significant that the followers of John the Baptist never use Jesus's name. They speak of him in third person. That guy that you spoke of before. And often when we get involved with unnecessary tertiary issues at the expense and at the pushback of gospel progress, it's really interesting how the name of Jesus fades away from being centrifugal to any one of our conversations. Number two, Hendrickson points out here, they seem disappointed that John the Baptist had even borne testimony of Jesus at all. You see, in this culture, when you had a rabbi, you weren't allowed to leave that rabbi to go follow another rabbi. You were rabbi exclusive. There was no rabbi hopping. It wasn't like a food court of rabbis that you could taste one this day and I'm going to be done with that. I'm going to go over to what he's cooking. You just didn't do that. You were, you were loyal. So, so to a cultural understanding, I get why they're saying what they're saying, but they had even missed their rabbis teaching about Rabbi Jesus along the way. So they allowed a cultural application of the use of a word to distract them from he who was most important. Culture over Christ. Third, Hendrickson points out that God's people who are distracted over tertiary issues or often use hyperbole and scarecrow illustrations to retain the attention of those listening to their arguments. What do they say here? John the Baptist's followers say, all are going to him. No one's coming to you. I mean, this is how the debate over first level things can cloud your judgment. I mean, John the Baptist is preaching, thousands are coming to him. 
Many are being baptized in these seven springs, this geography that's loaded with water. And they're saying, I hear you preaching and baptizing, but everybody's going to him now. No one's coming to you. It's, 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 it's good for us to learn from their use of hyperbole. I could really spend the next hour stating hundreds of terminal hyperbolic statements made by those who threaten many consequences if they didn't get their way in pursuit of a first level issue, but that's not the point. John, our gospel writer, finds it necessary to analyze and discuss what these followers of John the Baptist were thinking and saying for good reason, though. So it's good for us to unpack all of this together. So John the Baptist sets the record straight to his followers again. Praise God for that, right? One writer says this is the reason John writes of John the Baptist's response by saying, in harmony with the purpose of the whole book, right? These signs Jesus did so that they would believe. The author now dwells at length on the self-effacing answer of the baptizer. Let those in Asia Minor who follow him take it to heart so that they may know that when they place John above Jesus, they sin not only against the latter, but also against the former. John the Baptist's answer immediately gains traction and directs his followers to think eternally and not temporarily about first level issues. The text says, John answered and said, no man can receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven. Boom. Mic drop moment. Amen. Guys, collect yourselves. Remember what I just told you a little bit ago. Anything that I'm doing, I am doing is an assignment from the divine. I was called to be a forerunner and then a preacher, a baptizer, and then a deflector to him. He's always been the greatest among us. How quickly you've forgotten. John the Baptist is certainly saying that no one has the right to lay claim to a position in life or ministry unless it is granted to them from above. And once heaven grants a ministry position to someone, it's not to be repented of. That's your spiritual gift. That's our spiritual gifts together. It is not to be altered. It is to be protected because we minister these gifts to strengthen one another unto eternal purpose. And folks, not to be overbearing, but since John the Baptist's ministry was granted from heaven, it must be by its very nature about eternal things. The preaching of repentance and the public identification with Christ through baptism all pointed these newfound believing baptized people in a direction. And it was to live as little Christs, the life of Christ. As he had given his life a ransom for many, they should dedicate their lives to the same. One author said, instead of complaining about the success of Jesus, John the Baptist's followers should have been rejoicing that the Lord was using their rabbi for eternal purpose. Well, 
as one of my favorite sports leaders once said, criticism is the tax we pay on success. Jesus was having great success, greater success than John the Baptist. And that brought criticism of both, to which John has to clarify and redirect. And he does so. So, criticism nonetheless, first level issues, maybe even second level issues, but certainly not core issues, when we consider the text that's at hand in an all-sided fashion. This criticism can be loud, subjective, unwarranted, and about surface issues, but nonetheless, it's criticism. It often comes because gospel progress is being made, and even some followers of Jesus can get distracted away from the very purpose they've been saved. John the Baptist's clarity for his follows, I call you to witness that I said, in verse 28, I myself am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. John the Baptist uses a metaphor here to help us evaluate and prioritize well who we serve and why. I want us all to notice here that what John was saying or about to say has everything to do with him finding ultimate joy in his own personal service in the Lord. Look, if I follow you folks who have become a little bit misguided, regardless of what I've said, I'm not going to be as happy as a rabbi as you want me to be. Happy rabbi, goodbye. If I follow you and I get distracted by your first, second level issues, I'm not going to be joyful. But he says, I'm going to remain joyful by keeping Christ first. And he uses a little metaphor here to help them in this culture understand what he was saying. He says in the text, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now the bridegroom's friend who stands and hears him is very happy to hear the bridegroom's voice. Well, no one ever wants to hear after a wedding that the bride was actually more in love with the best man than the groom. That's kind of awkward, isn't it? It's actually happened. Really a problem. Nonetheless, I mean, that's the highest grievance possible, right? That's what John is saying here to his followers. Look, I have no greater joy than to know my followers would seek to make Jesus Lord of their lives. He's the bridegroom. He has a bride. They're the saved, now baptized followers of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I have no greater joy than that. No way would I want to be first chair or co-chair along with that principal rabbi. I'm a second chair leader. And that gives me great joy to point all people to him. And then John says, what? This joy of mine is now full. John had full assurance that those were, who were leaving him to follow Jesus were right. And they weren't being distracted by tertiary issues over quality of purification or the cultural application or definition of what the word rabbi was and, and who it was and, and the expectations of their followers. 
He's just saying, you know what? Go follow Jesus. Just go. Stop looking at me. Yes, be thrilled. God used me for his glory. I did what he told me to do. He brought his success upon me. Now go follow him. Go. I just see John the Baptist. He, right, he, he, was, he was a pretty blue collar guy, right? He wasn't going to say anything in a really Chrysostom, polished, golden tongue kind of way. It sounded like, you're a sinner, you repent, be saved, or you're going to die and enjoy eternal judgment. And if they got saved, they got baptized, and he said, no, shoot. He's over there. He's over there. And really, isn't that what we're going to do with the people that we have the opportunity to lead to Christ? Get their attention off of us and onto him? We'll help you. Yeah. We'll be used of God, how he gifted us in this local church. Praise God. I'll help study the word with you. But really, that's why he says in verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. So purification, priority. Have you been born again and have you identified with the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism? If not, I encourage you to follow the example of those who are baptized here. And then an evaluation. Are there first level, second level things that are distracting you from gospel progress? And have you actually become a criticizer of those enjoying gospel progress? Because that which you're talking about and debating about, though it be first or second level, is so critical, you have to be heard. When you yourself are distracted from gospel progress. And so he finishes with divine clarification in verses 31 to 36. And this will be the shortest of our three points, just because the application or the explanation is so simply understood and Actually, the application is kind of redundant here. States the same thing a couple of different ways. John the Baptist here in verses 31 to 36 in this divine clarification clarifies even more by saying three times in verse 31, John the Baptist emphasizes where his message is sourced. It comes from above. His message is sourced from on high. Remember we said the same thing in John 3.16. Or excuse me, John 3, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from on high. This is the same Greek term here. My message has been from heaven. It's been from on high. It's got a divine source to it. And because it is, that's the only message I will speak In verse 34, I speak the words of God. I speak the message of God. I I have not my own message to peddle as a rabbi. I have his message to teach. And by the way, that was countercultural in this time too, because what made you popular as a rabbi was your own exclusive messaging or, or taking a Jewish doctrine or philosophy or aspect of the Talmud and really zero in and polishing one aspect of it. And the better you got, the more eloquent you got at explaining those aspects, you'd gain more followers. And remember those followers, once they decided to follow you, weren't allowed to hop to another rabbi. So this is countercultural to the whole thing. But John the Baptist is saying, you know what? My message is his message. I have no other message for you. I know that's different, 
But Jesus is here now. He gets the attention. So it has a source, this message. This message actually has content to it, the most important content. And then it's got a divine support to it. John the Baptist says in verse 34 that the God of heaven has given the spirit of God to Jesus without measure. The reason why his success is greater than mine is because the spirit of God has given the fullness of himself to him. Certainly he's guiding me. Certainly he's helping me. But if you understand anything about the ministry of Jesus, it was not effectual without the aid of the divine comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he had given all of himself to all of what Christ did in his person and work on this earth. So this is mentioned of the ministry of God that he gave to Jesus to do, not just John the Baptist. But John the Baptist's ministry and our ministry is now really the ministry of the Son to preach, to baptize, <laughs> and to disciple and eagerly await the return of our Savior. Amen. Three practical applications and we'll go to our baptisms. One in the form, a couple in the form of a question. Have you been saved? Amen. And if so, have you been baptized? Amen. If not, it's never late, never too late to do right on either account. That's right. Jesus said, not me, you must be born from on high. Amen. You must have a spiritual birthday. And that day comes when you're tired of yourself, when you're tired of anyone else's help and trying to help yourself, and you come to the end of yourself, and you really consider yourself the greatest sinner in the room, you really can't be saved until you really believe you're the greatest sinner in the world. Did you know that? Yeah. Well, I didn't do what this guy did. Uh, stop that. Satan's already distracting you. You're the greatest sinner in the world. You can't be saved until you realize that. Paul even realized that after he was saved. You're so tired of that. Always leading to dead ends and leaving your soul empty and you say, I'm sorry, Lord, I repent. I repent. I turn. I agree with you, God, about my sin. Forgive me. Amen. Else I die an eternal death in the lake of fire. I repent. And I trust, Lord, I trusted you fully to be my Lord and Savior. When you've been born again from on high, you'll know. <laughs> and everybody else will too, quite frankly. And you'll want to be baptized. If you're not there yet with either, please know. We'd always love to sit down and talk to you about that. The person you know that comes here would love to sit down and continue to talk to you about that. But that's the first order of importance today. Secondly, do you need a self-evaluation regarding any tertiary matter that might be distracting you from your own personal gospel progress? Maybe a noble matter, maybe an important matter, but it's secondary to your gospel progress. What's distracting you away from that? 
And as your debate and dialogue about that secondary issue or first level issue, has it caused you to be one of those people that pushes back against the overall gospel progress of Grace Church of Mentor? Think about it. Evaluate it. And then talk to the Lord about it. And finally, have you made yourself the focus of others' lives instead of allowing Jesus to get all that attention? None of us wants to be the best man again that takes the bride, right? Have you made yourself the focus of attention on anything that's a first or second level issue, not a gospel issue? Again, it's never too late to do right to turn from that selfishness, that service narcissism, we called it earlier, and get back to serving the Lord the way he intended you to serve because that came from heaven and it has a message and it's underpinned with divine support from the spirit of God so for some of us we need to just stop playing church and after the self evaluation we've got some decisions to make okay. and this message has been given to the church for the church to take to the world. And by God's grace, we intend to do that on all eight cylinders until we hear the trumpet sound. Amen. And we pray that we can do it together. Amen. All right, Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the Spirit's help and a simple unpacking of this text together. and Help us, Lord, to remain faithful to what we've been given from on high for your glory and for the fame of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.